everybody. Welcome once again to the Soldiers of Cinema podcast. We are at episode 23, where we'll be discussing Nosferatu the Vampire, Herzog's 1979 film. And as always, with me today is Mr. Cullen McFader. What's up, dude? Hello. How you I'm doing? I'm good. No, yeah. You know, everything's very cold here, but... Uh... But, yeah, what are we sitting at up there temperature-wise? Oh, we've got to do the oh, geez, Celsius to Fahrenheit thing yeah. again. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Let's see what it is today. Uh, Negative here... six Celsius today. Whoa, so. okay. Well, so I know mm. that's at least, it's like in the 20s or something, right? Yeah. 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 Oh, my gosh. I, I, you know, I haven't been outside yet today. I know it's 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 kind of sad. It's, it's 1 o'clock p.m. here today, and I've yet to be outside. But here we're sitting at a super comfortable 63 degrees so i prefer that quite a bit of difference well maybe we could trade because i kind of miss winter you know i I grew up in the midwest where we have winters uh i guess that's easy to say though when you don't have to deal with it uh i don't i don't miss going outside and having my car door locks frozen shut you know and or Mm -hmm. things like that i I definitely don't miss that so anyway (laughs) uh but yeah like i said we're here to discuss herzog's i I mean i I definitely consider this a masterpiece i think Mm -hmm. many people would consider this to be one of herzog's masterpieces one of his greater works uh nosferatu the vampire from 1979 my personal um, favorite of his movies. Okay, um, excellent. And it's so. one of my favorites. And it is, I think, that it's the most beautiful film visually yeah, uh, that I he's agree. ever made. And he's yeah. he's made some really beautiful films, but I think this film is just extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And uh, so to give a little context to this, uh, you know, this film, it's not a remake, but I think, it, I think it would be fair to say that this is an homage to Murnau's 1922 film, Nosferatu. Mm-hmm. Um, and in listening to uh, Herzog speak about this film, it's very clear that this is an extremely important film. I, I would say it's it's likely that this is one of the most important films for him uh, as a filmmaker. And I've even heard him say that it wasn't until this film, and it's not that he had he hadn't made many films before this. I don't know how many films he'd made before this, but it, it's a lot. I'm you know. Mm. What I, I I don't even know. I don't want to say I'd be wrong, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's a couple dozen films he'd made before this one um, up until this point. But I've heard him say that he he didn't kind of know where he was as a filmmaker before this film. And that after he made this film, he had he knew where he had been. He knew where he was and he knew where he was going as a mm-hmm. filmmaker. So uh, and I know that that kind that um, it, it's an extremely important uh, this connection that he had with Murnau's film and to give a little context, I've heard Herzog speak to uh, the fact that growing up uh, in Germany and Bavaria and and becoming into film uh, as a young adult, that he felt this this felt orphaned, that the entire generation of filmmakers directly before him were non-existent in Germany because of World War II for various reasons, either they had been employed willfully willfully or unwillfully uh, into the Nazi machine, or they had fled the country or any number of things, but but that he felt like there were no, there was not a uh, uh, any father figure, so to speak, in film, and that he had to jump over that divide and go back even another generation. Uh, and, and so this film was one that was particularly impactful uh, to Herzog, uh, for that reason, he felt like it was a it was a way to connect himself to his filmmaking ancestors, if you will, in Germany. Uh, also, he felt that 
that the German culture and German film had been devastated by World War II and by, by frankly, by Nazis, and, and that had devastated the reputation and that the culture didn't feel valid anymore. And he wanted to go back to this time where German filmmaking and German culture uh, meant something, and he wanted to create a connection to that and uh, bring that import, you know, bring that back, that validity, that legitimacy of culture and film back to Germany. So, really, really an important film for him. Mm-hmm. I think he felt, you know, a, a lot was on this, and it meant a lot to him. And you know, to the point where I, I think we're all familiar, or many of you are familiar, uh, when he was a young filmmaker, uh, Lottie Eisner. Uh, was a really important figure to him. I think she was uh, a, a German film critic, if I'm not mistaken, or wrote quite a bit about German film and knew personally all of these, the Fritz Lang and uh, Murnau and other important expressionism uh, German filmmakers. And he even invited her. She actually came to the set and was there for part of this. And that was very important. That's uh, actually, that's the person that he walked, I, I think, was it was it a thousand kilometers? Uh, mm-hmm. He walked uh, to, to, quote unquote, keep her alive. You know, it's like she was on her deathbed, apparently. And he said, no, you're not dying. I'm going to walk. Yeah. I'm yeah. going to walk to you and you're going to stay alive because you know that I'm walking a thousand kilometers to to meet you. So you can't die. Uh, so clearly a very important film uh, for Herzog. And and to give even a little more context, as I just go on and on here, Cullen, thank you for being so patient. Yeah, no worries. While I just blab <laughs> away. Uh, but, but of course, Murnau's film in 22 was an illegal, if you will, remake of Bram Stoker's Dracula. Uh, he changed the names of all the characters, uh, but was actually still successfully sued. Mm-hmm. And as part of that, that losing that lawsuit, he actually, the, almost every... Uh, real every print mm-hmm. of this film was destroyed uh and it's actually practically a miracle that we have this film at all yeah. anymore thank only goodness. a few yeah. Pr- yeah thank goodness only a few prints survived and so that we were able to you know restorers were able to piece together a complete print uh and now thankfully in the digital age uh you have ready access to it if from anywhere uh, but, uh, I think that context is extremely important to understand. And, you know, Herzog says himself, and I, I agree, I, I, I'm so removed from what that might feel like. He's like, unless you're German, uh, it's very difficult to comprehend what that felt like to feel so orphaned, to not have any of the previous generation of filmmakers be there to mentor you or to inspire you. It, it you know, this total void that existed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think this was his way to kind of bridge that gap and to feel connected to his culture um, and ancestors. So, And the German film industry is, to me, one of the most interesting, um, yeah. both because of the movies that are, have been made throughout its history, but also because the context in which they were made. Um, I wrote a, a paper in uh, high school, like in my grade 12 history class when I was back in high school on specifically the effects of World War I. Um, yeah. But what's so interesting about um, the German industry is so you have World War One end and you have all these movies being made in Germany despite the fact that there are power outages that and these power outages led them to paint you know shadows on sets and use these huge shadows and everything was dark and high contrast because they couldn't power the lights yeah. so that's where this German expressionism comes from <laughs> and so you have a decade of that of economic turmoil and them yeah. struggling to make movies through you know with no money and no power um, and succeeding, you know, brilliantly. And yeah. then you have the decade of, you know, prior to World War One of the Nazi rise where, you know, people are being killed and imprisoned and stuff for speaking out against the regime. And then, of course, you have World War II um, where, uh, you know, you've got 
people, even more people being killed, of course, and, and this a huge clampdown on any dissenting voices, right? Even just artists in general, you yeah. know, like you didn't even have to be a dissenting. You just had to make art that wasn't necessarily approved by the regime. Right. And then you go post-World War II and you get into the Cold War where the country's split in half, yeah. um, which actually does apply slightly to this movie. Um, uh, we were talking yeah. about this a bit earlier, but the, the cinematographer um, was arrested for trying to smuggle his prison. girlfriend across. So right. you've got this the massive Berlin history Wall. of... Yeah you know, potentially the most, um, you know, put under pressure country for film in, in history. In a lot of um, ways, there's, yeah. there's never been, you know, until very recently, until like the past two decades, maybe, there's never really been a stable period of, of filmmaking in Germany, yeah. um, which I think is so, and it's remarkable that you have all these German movies that came out of um, those like tumultuous times that are still brilliant, you know, Herzog being uh, one of the masters of there, but you get Wim, Wim Wenders, who was also part of that German new wave. Mm. Um, and then you have movies like Nosferatu, which show that like there was this perseverance um, for German filmmakers, kind of in spite of all that, uh, the hardships, um, they still made these masterpieces. And perhaps, you know, perhaps because of the hardships, they made these masterpieces and they, you know, that, that, as they say, like only the strong survive. Um, you know, perhaps it was this like need. I to feel like you should have said that in Herzog's voice. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah but but uh, perhaps there was this need to overcome those odds. Yeah, um, and sure. so that these filmmakers kind of knew that they had to make something truly amazing, and they had to really you yeah. know pull out all the stops to to create these these masterpieces. It's um, an extremely rich, you know, and and I didn't know some of these things prior to preparing for this podcast. And I think, yes, it's, it's extremely vital to understand. I mean, look, every work of arts, culture and history is vital to, you know, to fully understanding it. Of course, you can appreciate the film mm -hmm. uh, on its own without knowing any of these things. Absolutely. Uh, of course. Yeah. But I think as you know, as you kind of dig deeper, you do uh, enrich in your understanding for sure. Um, and, and so maybe this is a good place we can talk about some of the comparisons uh, mm -hmm. to Murnau's film. Uh, they were made, you know, what, almost 60 years apart. Yeah. Uh, so filmmaking had changed quite a bit. Uh, and a couple immediate uh, differences that you can see is that, of course, Herzog's film is sound and is filmed in color. So he decided to go color as opposed to black and white. Uh, so those are two significant technical differences right mm -hmm. off the bat. Uh, that film had the medium had progressed technologically quite a bit in those almost 60 years. But there's some other really interesting changes, too. Although, you know, I think from a plot perspective, the vast majority of the plot is pretty much point for point. Mm -hmm. uh, there are some slight differences. And then, slight, of course, the ending is kind of a. Now, the ending is significantly different. different. But, right. Um, so the, but perhaps that's Herzog commenting on it as well. Is, could is be. Kind of his yeah, cynical kind of take on the ending. Maybe so. Yeah. Because in the. So in, in Murnau's film, we have uh, that Lucy does. And I'll just refer, I, you know, to, to these characters in the names uh, that they had here in Herzog's film. But, um, but Lucy uh, sacrifices herself to kill Count Dracula. Uh, and in the, in Herzog's film, he finally he has his name again because we didn't have those uh, those copyright issues. Yeah. He's Count Orlock in twenty two. Correct, Count right? So Herzog and, goes back to Count yeah. Dracula. Although it's interesting, some people do think that his name is Nosferatu. Yeah, um, yeah. but uh, which is we it seems to be the origin of that word is maybe a, like an ancient Romanian word for vampire, roughly yeah. translated, yeah. kind of. Um, but uh, she sacrifices herself. And uh, Count Dracula is killed. Uh, he's kept past the sun rising. Um, and then we have her husband, uh, Jonathan Harker, just uh, 
in in the original film uh just uh being he's alive and he's mourning her loss but in Herzog's remake, a much more cynical ending, if you will. Uh, he's actually, Lucy d still dies, sacrifices herself. Count Dracula is killed by the sun, but we have Jonathan Harker being turned into a vampire. Mm -hmm. And in Turn a really new, beautiful yeah. scene here at the end, we've got him, you know, commanding his his servant to you know get his horse he's got much work to do and yeah. he and he flies off on his horse and this, my favorite this, shot in the whole movie oh is it's that so shot beautiful of him riding off and you've the, got and of course this. he's changed into the, the the dark yes cape instead he's of his like flowing. yellowish one yeah and it's a it's an interesting little uh i guess you could call it a special effect scene there uh that mm -hmm. shot but uh we've got this really beautiful these it's not even dunes it's like a sandy plain it's perfectly it's flat windy. And you've yeah. got this 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 sand coming across and these beautiful waves. And then he is a double exposure where he's got the um, clouds from a different from a storm. I think he mm -hmm. said it was uh, flipped upside down and then run at high speed. Yeah. So it's a very unique it looks brilliant. shot. It's, it's a really great shot. Yeah. It really is beautiful. And, and, um, and there are so many good shots and we're going to we're going to get to that some more. And I think, you know, for me, at least the only other difference that I that really stood out to me was was how different Count Dracula is uh, in mm. Herzog's, film, Herzog's film as opposed to Murnau's film in 22. I think in Murnau's film, to me at least, it's, it seems that the, the Count Orlok in that film is, is much less uh, complex of a character. He's kind mm -hmm. of just this embodiment of evil, maybe even like insect-like or, you know, um, you know, we don't really get any kind of sense of complexity for him, but Kinski's uh, Count Dracula. I, I mean, we really get a sense of his suffering. It's uh, more tragic. It's, where he, it's, more it's much more tragic. Yeah. Where you know he's he's in suffering. He's in isolation. He can't die. And he even you know he talks about this like I you know the, the profoundness of a thousand nights. I can't ever die. There's no release from from this suffering. Uh, and it's it's through Lucy that he sees this purity that he feels salvation that, yeah. that he can write that he can be at the very least released from this suffering and write maybe even achieve some kind of so salvation. So yeah. you get a sense of of longing and suffering, human qualities in Herzog's Count Dracula as opposed to this kind of just evil of Murnau's yeah this pure Dracula. embodiment yeah yeah, yeah. So which is this, and it's interesting too because you can even like get it right down to the moment where. Um, the locket is seen with Lucy's photo and it's just, there's, there's, it's, it's the same, you know, idea, but the difference in like the subtext is, is there. It's, yeah. It's a much more of a, a longing of a, of a passion for yeah. the Kinski version than it is for this, this bloodlust that seems to, um, kind of overtake the, the Max Shrek, um, you know, and, I, Orlock. and not to say, I mean, Shrek, his Count Dracula Orlock was was just the physicality was such a powerful template that yeah. Kinski almost yeah. copies that verbatim. Frankly, mm -hmm. here uh, the physicality uh, is just in both performances is outstanding. But I think Kinski does bring this tragedy, this this this, this like profound suffering. There's just a depth to it. That, there's just a greater depth. You know, there's there's a. It's not, and I don't. I don't want to say it's one dimensional in the twenty two movie because right. I love the twenty two movie. I think it's 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 incredible. And sometimes but, um, it's okay to be one dimensional too. Yeah. Let's just say that's not but it's automatically. Much more, yeah, yeah. I mean, again, it's also. I mean, it's also you, you take the period it was made in. Movies weren't necessarily, you know, enriched with depth and character study and things like that then. Um, 
as much as they are, you know, with especially post 60s, that kind of new wave um, examination of characters and tropes and cliches and things like that, that you got with the 60s and 70s. Um, yeah. So Herzog is definitely riding on that. Yeah. Um, that style of, of like, let's take this story and let's actually bring it further and kind of bring it to the next step and examine it a little bit more. Which is and which is why I would never call this a remake. It's an mm-hmm. homage, mm-hmm. but I think it goes so much further. Um, and of course, you know, I mean, I, you know, this is just a, an aside. There, there was a new one being made by Robert Eggers, which I'd be curious to know if that one's going to be more well, ha- you know, and of a remake. Not but, to uh, digress too much, but has mm-hmm. it, this has been like kind of in production, out of production, kind of in turnaround or something for a while, right? For It's for been a few in years, pre-production or? for a while, and it was okay. just announced right after he did The Lighthouse that it was like full. Oh, like so was, not that long. It was greenlit and all that, yeah. I will have to look into that more. Yeah. I mean, I certainly would yeah, be I know nothing about it, so I'm yeah. not, I don't want to talk too much on it, but... Sure. Um, but it's just interesting to it'll be interesting when that comes out to see is that one going to kind of add even more subtext or right. is it going to try and be more of an homage to the Herzog is it going to be an homage to the the original where will it know. go yeah. well I, I think it, look if nothing else it's interesting to see that there's clearly uh there there is still this this interest in this kind of story in this yeah. character and so uh the the fact that they're making another film and again I Look, we don't want to get you know too carried away with kind of remakes and sequels and things. Sometimes I think in this case, with these two films that we're discussing here, um, it, it's I, it's not a remake, and both films contribute substantially to to film. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, of course, we get carried away, especially here in Hollywood, with remake after remake and you know recycling yeah. the same old yeah. stories. But I will be excited to see uh, what this new Nosferatu might turn into. But to go yeah. back to to Herzog's film. You know, some of the similarity as well. I mean, some of these shots are almost, you know, it's the exact same shots. Some of, you know, in mm-hmm. some places Herzog has replicated almost to a T uh, Murnau's film. Yeah. Um, and other places he he does make some significant differences like we, we've we talked about. Um, but uh, her, this is certainly, there's no question that you could say that this is Herzog's film. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, one of the things that I, that I just, you know, we both talked about how we thought this was one of his most more beautiful films. And yeah. I, I'd love to talk with you for a little bit about that, because although certainly he he takes aspects of the cinematography of uh, Murnau's film, and there's we definitely have a lot of this expressionism, this, you know, the high contrast lighting, low angles, canted angles, a lot of shadows. We even have some really interested usage of unmotivated light and kind mm-hmm. of, you know, surreal uh, surreal shots and and that are just beautiful and you can see you know very clearly that this is an homage. But he also does a lot of different things. Uh, his his exteriors, his landscape shots. Um, there's some really amazing work here. I think there's this this stark contrast between two styles in the movie that work incredibly well together. Um, you've got this this like and Herzog is to me one of the masters of of handheld photography because I I find that handheld photography when it's not accurate and when it's not precise doesn't work mm-hmm. herzog's is always really precise herzog always knows what he's doing with his hand and there's a lot so of it, it in this film incredible there's, there's, a, yeah, lot there's a lot of handheld in this film yeah um, but it really it contrasts with and uh, this was something that we just kind of noticed recently when i was i was watching herzog's without sound is that there's also moments in herzog's that that look like a silent picture and one of those moments is when um when nosferatu or 
when Dracula is bringing his coffin off of the boat to find his new home, basically. And he's going through this graveyard and he winds up in this church. And if you watch that without sound, you know, Kinski's performance is almost vaudevillian. He's exaggerated his yeah. facial expressions and he kind of silent film yeah. basks at some light at some point. And it's like, it looks like a silent film. But yeah. interestingly, you mentioned that Herzog, this was brought up to Herzog by, uh, in the commentary. And right, by Herzog his interviewer. Said yeah. That he like had no intention to do that. And he had, he had no idea that it even came across that way. Which yeah. Is really, and, and didn't really even know if he agreed necessarily with yeah. the observation. But, yeah. but I would agree with you. I think that it, and a lot of the performance and a lot of the way it's shot, uh, this this certainly could, if you turn the sound off, I, I don't know that you would miss a tremendous amount about no. uh, the story here. I think it would work quite well as a silent film. Well, that's what's interesting, because the reason I turned the sound off was because I was just looking at these shots while we were talking. And I noticed that I, I didn't pause it. Like, I just kept it going because I was like, even during the dialogue sequences where, you know, you should be, of course, listening, it works in silence and i actually am curious now you know once we're done this i might actually go yeah. back and watch the whole movie just and, yeah. without any sound because i think sure. that that um you know it provides such an interesting like i i was what was interesting to me about it was that it was something that you know i always thought this movie was beautiful it's my i think it's my favorite of herzog's movies um mm. both visually and just just you know In i just love it yeah um but uh looking at it without the sound it like it, it just offered an entirely new perspective for me of just looking at where and perhaps you know it could have even been um like choices that kinski was making to kind of pull from that silent era yeah um, but there's also one of the things that we kind of both pointed out was um there's really long takes too there's a lot of takes uh, yeah. that to me also again harken back to whether intentionally or unintentionally um that silent movie era where it's like somebody moving through a space the camera's locked down on a tripod right and you're just panning with them and following character um, enters does their yeah. business character exits and you and show the, no the entirety of it yeah yeah there is a lot there and uh, and it's interesting that you mentioned that there is a lot of this, especially uh, when it comes to travel, as we have, you know, mm -hmm. Jonathan Harker, uh, Bruno Gans character, he's traveling from his home to Transylvania. Uh, and Herzog even talks that, you know, we, he, there's a lot of just of long takes of travel of this character kind of moving through the frame very deliberately. And uh, Herzog even mentions in his commentary how, you know, 21st century who didn't produce the film, uh, like some people think, but distributed it in the U.S. Mm -hmm. only, uh, you know, tried to get him to take these things out. And they said, look, you know, geez, we, we get the idea. He's like traveling. We don't have to have five minutes of him traveling, you know. And Herzog was like, no, no, no. That That's is the point. The point. That yeah. is the point. And of course, you know, we've discussed this many times here in this podcast, how important it is uh, for Herzog, this traveling on foot. And and it's interesting to note, we didn't mention it a moment ago when we were kind of comparing and contrasting, mm -hmm. but that is actually a substantial difference yeah. uh, from the original film. Yeah, because uh, in the is, original, he he takes the carriage and then switches right. carriages to Count Orlok's right. um, you know, servant that comes by, which is honestly, in the original movie, one of the, to me, creepiest moments, how the carriage yeah. moves because it's kind of fast motion and there's this really creepy horse yeah. thing. So there's, but of course, as you were mentioning in Herzog's, he does it on foot. He gets to you know, and it doesn't seem Dracula's castle on foot. Yeah. And if you didn't understand, uh, if you didn't have the context of what that means to Herzog, you might not find that to be any kind of significance, uh, you mm -hmm. know, in that change to be of any significance. But I, I think it very much is for Herzog. Um, and we see this transition of landscape um, that he's kind of going almost through this wasteland, right? These dangerous types of landscapes that, you know, narrow ledge, 
uh, on the side of that, you know, rocky cliff with the yeah, water. Yeah, the river this, running by. Yeah, yeah. Right. And these these really precarious feeling hills with the the, wa- the, the rocks, the large boulders and the, the white water uh, moving quickly. Uh, and we know that, you know, Herzog is always trying to find a landscape that represents, you know, that's a landscape of the soul. And mm-hmm. so I think it's it's much more important in this film and much more conscientious um, than maybe the travel part was. Oh, God, it's for now. There's the moment yeah. when he's climbing that um, mount, the, the, the really wet rocks next to the right. waterfall that's yes. coming down and it's it's up and just watching him climb for for probably a minute. Like it's yeah. probably not and, even cut for a minute. And it's it's beautiful. And never be um, in a modern film. You'd never no. have that in a modern film, no. ever, Which ever. to me is unfortunate. You know, it people, is. Herzog is so good, especially in this movie um, and in, I think, all of his movies, but um, of just taking time and letting atmosphere. And I know, you know, I've had this conversation, with, especially working on features, um, where, you know, people just want, you know, the, the, a note that people often give is just like, okay, get to it, get to it. Right. Okay, let's yeah, go, yeah, let's yeah. go. All the time. And I'm like, but but one thing that I find and one thing I find so, so appealing about a lot of modern or, you know, the few modern directors that still do this is that atmosphere matters a ton. And I think Herzog really understands that. And there's a few directors working today that really understand that about like, you can sit on things. Um, A huge part of this movie is allowing yourself to sit and just take in the atmosphere. And it's something that the 22 film does um, differently than Dracula, actually. And there's there's sort of a compare and contrast with the original Dracula film that the 22 film was pulling from is that. Dracula really brushes by the castle sequence. Yeah. Um, Dracula in Dracula, I don't remember the characters' names in Dracula, but the guy gets to the castle. Yeah. The castle sequence is pretty short. He's he's bitten, and then he returns Boom. with Dracula to London. Right. It's um, just a plot device. Yeah. It's not really any, for huge, anything else. Yeah. Huge aspect of of both the twenty two version and the Herzog version are how long is spent at the. It's like half of the movie they're at the castle. Well, it's a good chunk. Um, it's a good chunk yeah. of time, and we really see. I, I, and there's, you know, and speaking of that, you remind me uh, in Herzog's film of, you know, a really, a, we talk about these long takes and it's whether they're, you know, Dracula and Harker at the, the dining room table that first night and he cuts his thumb, right? This famous mm-hmm. scene where Kinski is so, is compelled to like, <laughs> compelled by the sight of blood, the smell of blood. And, you know, he tries to keep himself from it but he can't and he throws himself on to jonathan's hand and sucks the blood from his finger but this take goes on and on and we move from the dining room table through this you know to the fireplace and you know there's another scene where uh a bit later and you know jonathan's trying to find his way out of the castle and he checks you know half a dozen doors uh, in any other film or in most films you would have you know just cut in, you know insert cut insert cut you know boom 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 he's trying these doors and here we we just it's all in one we're following him um and you know Herzog sp- speaks to uh the importance for him of maintaining you know a spatial continuity yeah never wanting yeah, yeah. the audience to not understand where things are spatially and so he prefers often to shoot in these long takes just to uh, get the audience to learn yeah just to and and, and for me too I generally prefer that. Uh, I, I think if you talk to many actors, they will prefer working in that manner. Um, I think a lot, especially when you talk about action scenes uh, in today's modern films, I, I sometimes feel like things are cut just too much. They're just, yeah, we yeah. lose a spatial orientation 
and we don't believe anything that's in front of us because we know that every time something happens, there's a cut to some other, you know, some insert or, or cut to some other take or cut to something, and they don't often mesh perfectly well. And even if you can't articulate it consciously, you kind of know something's off. You know, angles aren't matching. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. the, and, and I think we 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 see this so much in film now. And let's face it, too, it's a lot cheaper generally to shoot that way, apples to yeah. apples, right? It's yeah. a lot harder to shoot a two-minute take. Well, it's, it it's also interesting that that what's what's actually very relevant about this movie to me right now is um, the plague, the plague that yes, <laughs> but no, the so the, the feature that I'm working on right now, um, there was actually there's a specific moment when um, when Kinski is entering um, Jonathan Harker's room in the castle and he's like got his like hands splayed out and stretched out and he's almost floating into the room and it's it's a terrifying image like it's probably to me the most like bone chilling uh image in the whole movie or at least one of them Mm -hmm. um and he's just like floating in the room and it's this long long take where parker gets up fast he he, like pulls back and looks at him flies back to the corner of the bed but but kinski's just floating and i don't know how they did it either they had him on a string or if they had him on some sort of track or something because he's he's like floating without moving anything um it's hard to say it could have even been his physicality might have created that illusion yeah um, but I, I actually, you know, in doing the the feature that I'm I'm working on right now, um, you know, I was saying to the team that we're we're doing it with that I, I sort of said like there's a moment in it where I specifically showed them that moment because oh, I was nice. like this is exactly how I want it to be that it's and it's so different you know normally you'd get a vampire movie you'd think of like a vampire creeping in and he's all like crawling around or something like that and all creepy but no there's this stillness to yeah. kinski's portrayal and to herzog's direction that i think really work and then which again when suddenly you know kinski like is tossing the chair away and you've got this this visceral handheld uh camera work mm-hmm. contrasts so much and makes those moments so much more impactful because you're going holy like okay this is you know now he's angry yeah um so it's and there's a lot of that internalization stuff yeah i think in these performances there's a lot of you know uh i think there's some really beautiful moments where you've got uh whether it's it's lucy alone or it's lucy and jonathan together uh several instances at the beach where you have these these tender emotional moments but herzog chooses to shoot chooses to shoot from behind Mm -hmm. and often from quite a distance yeah. Um, and I think, you know, a, a lot of times what you'd have there is you'd have the camera right in their face and you'd want to really, you know, hit it on the nose. Let's get I want to see that the waterworks or, you know, we yeah, want to sweat running down his face. We, yeah, yeah. And, and so I think there's often that that's kind of the direction that people go. But I very much appreciate this understated manner with which he's shooting these moments because it really does allow us as an audience to be more involved to use our imagination Mm -hmm. and you know i also think that it does a fantastic job and it's appropriate in this film of highlighting you know the isolation that these characters are experiencing yeah um and uh and it's a fantastic way i think to kind of introduce the suspense or the foreboding and, and again that intentionally that or unintentionally yeah. yeah and intentionally or unintentionally feels very german expressionist yeah like it it totally you know again and i'll take herzog at his word to say that he didn't uh he didn't intend that because you know there's no reason to lie about that but um but I think that it's just so interesting and perhaps it was just this subconscious thing of just like understanding the context of which this movie takes place and the style and the atmosphere that you need to convey yeah. that you almost need to pull from those conventions of of like 
silent movies. Well, and um, I think a lot of the way he shot this film is a lot of is the is you know the way that he's made films before this quite yes, a bit, right? Yeah. I think it's just yeah. kind of part of the fabric of who he is as a filmmaker. Which I makes sense it. about this whole orphaned filmmaker thing too. Yeah, that he would then pull from yeah. Which yeah, is really cause interesting because I, I really don't see you know uh, there are, obviously there's are some differences and you know Herzog has made a very wide range of of styles and types of films and mm-hmm. uh, different subjects but I I have no problem believing that this is a Herzog film you know yes yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. it's not like this film somehow is so different than all the rest in in no. too many ways for me to know that this is Herzog. Um, and so I really feel like it's just a natural extension of, of who he is as a filmmaker. Which arguably is the most interesting way to, you know, whether you want to call it a homage or a remake or whatever, but it's the most, like, that to me is when I get interested in movies that are, are being remade or retold, um, is, is that, you know, so often people remake movies or, or try and retell the same stories and try and push the original director's style onto it or, or kind of keep right. that going. Whereas I find the opposite. I find that if it's a director who's who's retelling the same story or doing an homage to an older movie, that if they put their own fingerprints all over it, it makes it 10 times more interesting because you get to see yeah. how would Herzog have directed Nosferatu, which obviously we have because right. he did. But, um, <laughs> you know, to me, that's more interesting than if Herzog was just, you know, spent the entire time trying to mimic Right. The shots and the style of the original. Like Psycho. Um, but I just think that it's really interesting. Yeah, exactly. Like Psycho. Um, but I just think that it's really neat that um, you can really see his roots in this and you can see where those styles came from and how he... Yeah. Like, and I think it's really interesting that you mentioned the idea of that orphaned, that he was like, he says he was a kind of like an orphan generation of filmmakers. Yeah. Um, because you can really see, okay, you know, in the United States, a filmmaker Herzog's age would have, you know, grown up, you know, perhaps a little bit younger than, her, you know, a little much younger than Hitchcock and kind of been inspired by those people who were working contemporarily yeah. in the 40s and 50s. Herzog is, you know, working from the 20s and 10s, yeah. which is really, really interesting. And of course, you you tie this all in with the fact that, you know, he, he hadn't seen film until he was, I think, 17, he yeah. said. And yeah. so, you know, this definitely has an impact. And I think we see a lot of his kind of, you know, some more of his personal touches that, that come across to me. We've got uh, you know, we, we start the film with a, with this long shot of the cats and the, um, pendant. And that mm-hmm. always makes me think Herzog, I, I think every film, you know, almost every film that he's made has some kind of, you know, he lingers on some animal for some period of time. Yeah. Uh, and lots and, of bats in this. And, and lots yeah. of bats. And yeah, it, it's interesting, you know, the, the shot, the slow motion shots of the bats here, he actually took from a scientific film. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we're looking at, he, he didn't quite know. So he kind of gave a range of 500 to 800 uh, frames per second. Um, of these scientific films uh, that yeah. he that were kind of studying the wing movement of bats, and so he he Looks grabbed that, put it into the film, but it works fantastically. Um, we've got these really interesting kind of tableau shots of one that really stands out in my mind, and it's very surreal, and I, I guess you could call it unnatural in a sense or unrealistic, but it, it works perfect here. Is that uh, the, the, of Renfeld in prison with the two guards, one mm-hmm. on each side, and they're practically staring right at the camera. And there's a there are a handful of shots in Murnau's 22 film that are very similar to this. It's almost kind of like a still photography type of, of you know, of, of shooting, if you will. Right. Where we had these these tableaus in photography in the early era, in the early you know beginnings of photography, where people had to sit for, you know, sometimes minutes to get um to get an exposure. And I almost get a sense that there's some, some of the, the shots in Herzog's films going back that far. And you look how just it's, it's the very, 
uh, it, it's just kind of unnerving and kind of gives you this this sense of just surrealness, which I think works perfect here. But huge that seems... sense of yeah, huge sense of surrealism, which also you know really ties into the use of music. Yeah, um, well, and of course, Herzog, he, yeah, he, he, he uses it's... one of his common collaborators yeah. here, absolutely, and um, um, and of course, it opens with this this choral, um, you know, very deep kind of coral and strings mixed on over the shots of the the mummified bodies which mm. were real which is um, a, yeah which which then, was like shot in uh yeah. Guatemala, in mexico said, i think yeah. yep or, and yeah. uh he shot that in mexico and uh i think you know it's kind of the, the story here is that he I think he was in the states for uh, on some type of scholarship or sponsorship or something and and for whatever reason he decided he didn't want to perform the duties that he needed to do to keep that current so he escaped to mexico because i mm-hmm. he, he the way he tells it he was going to be sent back to germany so he <laughs> runs to mexico to escape the authorities here in the u.s and uh while there he came across this area where uh i as sort of the story goes there was a cemetery i guess where you had to r- pay for the the plots indefinitely so as long as the body was there you'd have to pay rent basically yeah and so eventually you know some people would stop paying rent for whatever reason maybe they were finally dead right but anyway and so they would dig these bodies up and just because of the nature of the of the climate and soil there they would be mummified and so over time people started to come to see these mummified bodies and then it kind of grew into like a museum so they had these mummified bodies on display in glass cases and when Her- Herzog saw that, he was completely mesmerized. And so he convinced them to uh, to let him take the bodies out of the cases and line them up against this wall. And he shot them. And I mean, talk about effective because, look, yeah, you can tell that's real. I mean, yeah, it's very you know, unnerving. Yeah. If, you know, it's like all the special effects in the world. Uh, and I don't even know if still to this day if you're going to make a more convincing uh, scene than what An we have here. Unsettling moment. I know. Yeah. I just so. I mean, and because they're still wearing clothes, like some of those bodies are in boots, and mm-hmm. you know, it, Herzog says when he picked them up to lift them to place them on the wall, they might have weighed fifteen pounds because they're uh, so brittle. They're yeah. just so brittle and dry, but extremely yeah. interesting. Yeah. And and um, so then, so we get that opening with that that beautiful choral and strings music, which actually is really I like. I love the moment in that 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 music which he uses again and again through the movie where it goes from choral and then you have that high strings come in i think it's a really beautiful piece yeah um and then it goes to you know when he's traveling and kind of opening there's this like almost very 70s kind of folk guitar almost yeah that, like, plays as he's and, and again it's like it kind of is jarring at the at first because you're going from you know this 16th century or whatever uh decade or era it takes place in yeah um this this very old, of course. Well, so you the, know. F- the film takes place in, it's or roughly, it? I think you're probably, the mid-1800s. 1800s, is where I think yeah, yeah. Yeah, the mid-1800s is where we've got the film placed, right? Yeah. Um, but you go from that, in which, of course, you don't really think of like this like strumming guitar. Sure. But it works. It, it, it definitely works for the travel scenes and stuff like that. And then, um, you know, the third kind of piece that really stands out to me is, of course, his use of Wagner, um, right. which is the prelude to the entry of the gods into the Valhalla from mm-hmm. um the Rheingold, das Rheingold. and of course that you know that to me i can understand why he chose that and um i believe he's used that in other movies as well but for this it really he works is a fan. because it's um yeah. it's about um you know that whole piece it's like it's, a, it's about ascension and it's about uh you know just like rebirth and all this right. stuff and and so he uses that both um on count dracula's journey to the town um or the city but also he uses it at the end when the town is kind of in 
decimated by this plague and it's it's such an effective piece of music right um, i always like that piece too because i back in i think high school i was making a short film and i used that piece in it without even having known that that herzog was a huge fan of it and also malik uses it sometimes great piece of music yeah um, but it's super effective here and so what i really like about that and it's it's kind of a lot to my own taste um is that the like the music doesn't you know a lot of directors are very very particular about using music that all sounds like it fits within the same kind of genre right. or, or, or or mood or style. Or era, Herzog kind right. of just throws out against the window or out the window and doesn't really care. Um, and I like that a lot because it 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 really affects the scenes that it, that are happening. It, yeah. That you know again that guitar music kind of puts you at ease as um, as uh, what's his name Harker. Harker is going to the castle. It kind of puts you at ease as he is because he's yeah. kind of like laissez-faire about it and he's sort of going along saying like i'll be fine you know he doesn't know yet what's in store for him yeah right so you get this guitar music (laughs) and you you sort of feel this calmness but then you arrive at the castle and that's all stripped away and it it becomes very again raw and visceral um i don't think there's you know correct me if i'm wrong i don't think there's really much music used in the castle um I think most there of that are, is there just are periods atmosphere. for sure. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's there's periods for sure where it's where there's not a lot of music going on. Mm-hmm. I absolutely and it's just kind of atmosphere and and, uh, and, 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 yeah. and well and there, yeah and we do have that. We have some really interesting sound effects. Um, and you know, in reading Herzog's treatment, we haven't talked a lot about this, but but the treatment, not the script, but the treatment for this film, about 130 pages long, is available online. Um, and it, you know, it's very interesting to see how Herzog writes. You know, he doesn't write in a script format. Uh, it's very much a prose format and there's there's none of this you know camera direction or anything else mm-hmm. um dialogue is separated but barely uh not anywhere near like a screenwriting format but but that's be- specifically called out we we hear the you know the the wolves outside these the sounds are very much integrated directly the children into of the his, night yeah. right it's very much integrated and you know there is a lot of the, I, I listened to the soundtrack last night and Popova Florian Frick uh, did the soundtrack and Florian uh, Frick has done the soundtrack the music for many of Herzog's films I I, I don't even want to venture a guess to the number I'd probably be wrong but many of them right mm-hmm. um, and there's a lot of this and it, like you were saying it's very interesting we, we move from you know an acoustic guitar and it's almost kind of the 70s vibe to you know sitars and this droning kind of you Mm -hmm. know hypnotic music uh there's a lot of really interesting stuff there uh and one and and music that you just wouldn't immediately correlate with a horror film or you know uh, at all i also want to add that this movie to me feels very timeless like it doesn't it nothing in does. it feels 1979 it it feels like it could yeah. be made in any decade and would be the same and would work the same um and i think a lot of that is about just just herzog's masterful direction i think the fact that he 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 directs in a way that is him and doesn't really yeah. adhere to styles of the time um I, I think that's a great point and you know herzog has never been somebody to jump on fads yeah, and yeah. to hop on trends i mean that you know it, it, you can say you know I, you like them, you don't like them, you, this, that, the other thing, but it'd be really hard to argue uh, that for anybody to take the stance that Herzog is like somebody else. And, yes. you know, yeah, yeah. I mean, he he's definitely his own filmmaker. And I think many of his films have that feeling to me where mm-hmm. they're and I think Herzog is just such a, a, a unique dude, you know, to, 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 to get at technical terms there. I think he's such a unique dude. That yeah. It's just <laughs> that his work just kind of 
you know, stands on its own and it's just not trendy, I guess is the best way I could say it. His films aren't trendy. And so they don't evaporate with the passing years like a lot of other films might, you know? Mm -hmm. And you said that he hadn't even seen most versions of Dracula on film before. Making. I I don't know that he had had he seen any others. I'm not yeah. sure that he had seen any other aside from the 22, you know, Nosferatu from Nosferatu. 22. I don't know that he had. I I I feel like it's possible that he said he hadn't or he or or that he had seen uh other films at least you know when he did the commentary. I there is one specific memory I have where he had he had actually of course this is after he made his film, but he had seen Coppola's Bram Stoker's director. Okay, yeah, yeah. And, which is and, the nineties, and, and he didn't like it at all, mm-hmm. um, because he felt like it was too like he felt like it started off strong, but then kind of went nowhere. I think he he often talks about how he's he's not a big fan of romanticizing, of kind of turning it into this like romantic kind of story. He's just not a big fan of that direction for mm-hmm. this character for this story. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think his vision is coming pretty singularly from just inside of himself and from Murnau's film, you know. uh, And I think that's very clear about the, you know, that comment about the romance um, in the fact that there is no, you know, Lucy through the whole movie is, is, is arguably the strongest character. Yeah. Um, Like she does not, you know, bend her will to anything. Like she's like smart and she gets, you know, of course she's the one that winds up killing him. Well, and um, especially if you put her character in, you know, if you put her character as a woman in the mid 1800s, if you put it in that context, absolutely, mm-hmm. because you just, you know, I think that uh, in a lot of other tellings of this type of story, you would not have this be the case. No. And so mm-hmm. I think you're right. It's even almost, you know, um, you know, Jonathan almost doesn't even have his own agency in a sense. You know, um, Renfield definitely doesn't have his own agency. Yeah. He's immediately under the spell of Count Dracula and and eventually just turns into an insane uh, underling, if you will, I guess, of Dracula's, right? I mean, he's, he's literally just mindless at that point. Yeah. Um, Jonathan is so taken by this idea that he is going to make money off this. Uh, and then as soon as he goes to the castle, now everything he's doing is in like is, is in reaction. And ultimately, I mean, he's ended up under Dracula's spell, literally, as he's bitten, and he loses his agency. So even though Lucy dies in the end, I mean, she is the one who actually stops Dracula. Mm-hmm. And and she's the only one who has any sense uh, during the when the plague is taken over the city people are dying. She says, I know who's to blame. I know what's behind. She goes to Van Helsing. Yeah. Of course, no one will listen to her. Van Helsing won't listen to her. Um, But, but she is, I think she is the strongest character out of all of them here. Mm -hmm. And And I think it's interesting too, um, that in uh, Dracula, the, the, you know, the count Dracula movies Mm -hmm. um, that uh, we've got this, this very different kind of, telling of the story and it's been a few years since i've seen it so i may you know may get some of the details wrong but from what i remember um is the character of harker who is named something different i believe in dracula uh, yeah it might be the same but he he arrives at the castle and almost becomes dracula's underling after he's being eaten or yeah. being you know blood sucked and Blo- so he right, right. returns Bit. to london with dracula whereas in this one you know characters have a little bit more autonomy yeah. Um, of course, Harker, you know, breaks out of the castle to get home to warn Lucy and to warn the town that this, you know, this 
this evil monster is coming. Right. Um, Sadly, once he gets there, he yeah. doesn't recognize her, and of course, eventually becomes uh, the vampire replaces yeah. uh, Kinski's Dracula. And mm-hmm. but uh, I, I agree, very interesting. You know, Herzog even speaks to that a little bit, and. In one of the commentaries that I listened to, and it's interesting if, if anybody, if you're interested to listen to those commentaries out there, I'll just make a quick note that the Shout Factory release of the Blu-ray, at least, I don't have the DVD, but at least the Blu-ray uh, has both, and we're going to talk about this in a quick second too, but has both the German and English versions of this film. We haven't spoken to that, but we'll talk about that in a minute. But on the German version, there are actually two commentary tracks from Herzog. And he actually speaks to that. Uh, the interviewer in, in one of the commentary tracks kind of makes note that uh, Herzog doesn't have didn't have a lot of uh, female main characters of uh, women prior to this film, and you know I guess Herzog kind of says to that that his films are such I guess his lead characters are such extensions of him that they kind of end up being males because he it, it's he feels like they're just him basically like he's mm-hmm. just transplant I mean not literally right but he's transplanting parts of himself into these characters so it is an impor- important milestone or an important thing to note that there's something quite different for Herzog that he's doing here with her yeah yeah and actually I just I just looked this up um that it actually is Renfield in the Dracula movies that goes oh. so there harker's not a character it's just renfield who Got goes it. on his own and so they're becomes kind of mixed, his underling yeah mix up some characters um, it's yeah you can see where they get that but uh, yeah but i but i do want to also talk a little bit about so what actually is kind of you know and this is probably just coincidence but it's funny that um you know as you mentioned that there's a german and english version of herzogs right um but in 1931 when they were doing the bella lugosi dracula um there were actually two draculas being consecutively shot there too Oh. Um, there was an Italian version that would shoot knights, and then during the day, the set would be used for the English version. So it's kind of funny that, that you know, a again, just coincidence, of, yeah, I highly Coincidence that. happens. Well, um, and it is really interesting here that, you know, Herzog kind of, in a way, made two films at once, which is pretty amazing, and especially for the budget with which he made it. I mean, you got to keep in mind, you know, very low budget uh, for this film. Um, but he, yeah, he shot uh, both an English and German version, and, uh, you know, I, there's a couple different, you know, explanations we get for that. On the one hand, we hear that 20, 21st century, uh, who distributed it in the U.S., pushed him to make an English version. Mm-hmm. Uh, Herzog talks about the fact that, you know, they had an international cast and uh, English was the most commonly spoken language out of the entire cast, actually, as opposed to German. Um, and we even do have some dubbing in there. Renfeld. Yeah, uh, Renfeld's far, dubbed. Yeah. Roland Topor actually, I think, is dubbed, unfortunately, uh, in both versions because they just deemed that his accent was too difficult to understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I think that He's might French be... in, in correct, in correct. So, um, yeah. And a lot of these actors have some interesting. You not talk too much about that, but. You know, I mean, obviously, Kinski, it kind of goes without saying that, you know, Kinski's work with Herzog prior to this, um, I, that, I mean, talk about dynamic duo. Whenever you talk about Herzog, you can hardly refrain from mentioning Kinski, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but Bruno Gantz was uh, a, a very successful theater, yeah. I think mostly by this time theater. But then, of course, he went on to have a long career. And you even yeah. you mentioned that he was uh, even played Hitler in Downfall. And, yeah, which is arguably, you know, a lot of people consider that to be like the best depiction of, right. of Hitler. As and, an, and of, of an actor. you know, he'll live on in, in the me- millions yes, of the memes. memes that have been made from that scene <laughs> um, where people, yeah. you know, redub that. But uh, unfortunately, he, his he last passed away role, just last year or two years yeah, ago, so I think. Yeah, so it's 2019 and his last role is actually... Um, 
Malick's film, uh, A Hidden Life, which I thought was great. I don't know if you've seen that, but um, I have fun seen fact. It. Yeah. His, his final role is in that movie, and he's he's wonderful in that. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's a very small role, but still good. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I do. And so I watched um, both versions. I watched the English and then the German. I'd seen the German before a few years ago, but I decided to rewatch them both. Right. But um, it's interesting because Herzog also refers to the German view version as like more authentic. Um, Definitely. But that he doesn't purist. disavow right. the, the English. He sort of says that, you know, they're both kind of watch which one you want but i think the german one is is the purest pure yeah. one yeah um and but but what i've noticed is that there's not a huge um difference between the two of them that there's no of Very course minor. there's no plot differences yeah. um the most major difference is that the dialogue in english is stripped down um it's a lot more straightforward and less poetic yeah um and it's, it's kind of yeah which is in, yeah and so it's just and perhaps it's just you know a matter of translation but um but yeah there's there's a lot more um, just kind of straightforward dialogue. And you said in that English. Kinski's performance was a little less. Yeah, Kinski's how should is, you say it? Intense, maybe. Yes, you felt it's a like. bit more subdued. Yeah. Um, he he kind of plays it back a little bit more, as opposed to in the German version, he's much more harsh and and like sharp, uh, which yeah. I thought was interesting. And it's not. I mean, again, I say much more. It's not something that you would go like, "Wow, this you'd is have to watch it." Right. It's not like but, you'd um, leave leave the viewing with a you know uh, impression of a completely different film. But no, if you watch yeah. them back to back, these things might become yeah. apparent. Yeah. And it's uh, it, I guess the kind of the other difference to me is just that scenes are slightly di- edited differently, which you know you and I kind of just put up to performances, like the likelihood Could that just be, performances work in certain yeah. areas and. Right. So, because um, everything is pretty much, you know, the setups are the same, the framing is the same. Yeah. We have some instances where he, you know, they'll he'll cut to a close up where they stays in a wide, but it, but it happens infrequently, and it, there's yeah. not a big difference, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I I mean I will say that I prefer the German one, um, right? But uh, I, I do too. But that's because yeah. That's, that's the only I one mean I've the, seen. the German one to me, <laughs> and the same reason that. I think Herzog prefers it and, you know, not to put words in his mouth, but I would assume that he prefers it because it is the, you know, the first language of the actors for most of the actors and it's, or it's Herzog's first language. So naturally, you know, you would feel an affinity towards the more, you know, authentic performances. Whereas if I was an actor, even if I spoke, you know, a second language completely fluently, um, I would still probably feel more comfortable to give my best performance in my native tongue yeah um so perhaps that's you know he could have a completely different take on that i'm, I'm sure. not trying to it, it could, you know, it could assume, even be but... something as simple as i mean maybe they did you know the, the maybe they shot uh the german ver you know first of like takes one through four were german yeah. and he feels like he's got it in the can so they keep the same setup and then they move on you know now takes five through ten are english and it could yeah. just be something yeah. as simple as it order was different and and who knows maybe vice versa you know maybe they weren't warmed up until the german version or you know so who knows i mean uh unless you were there on set there's no way to know it'd no. be fun it'd be fun if we ever get a chance to talk to herzog about that that would be a cool thing to discuss mm-hmm. um but yeah i mean i think it's uh in this past hour i feel like we have gotten to touch on pretty much just about everything yeah. we it could flew touch by on. too it flew by too yeah. well it's it's a beautiful film and you know everybody out there listening hopefully you have seen the film Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really feel like there's been, you know, I mean, I guess it's how old is the film? 79? 79. Well, Probably I mean, don't technically need to the put... story is 22. So <laughs> right. almost so 100 like I, years old. <laughs> it's like, I don't think we need to put spoiler alert anywhere, no, but hopefully no. you've seen the film prior to listening to this. But if you haven't, or heck, even if you have, hopefully our discussion here has inspired you to watch it again. Yeah. And uh, I'd watch ha- the 22 version as well, if you haven't seen I, it. I, you um, know, and it's, it, it, look, I, you know, I'm, 
I have been kind of modernized, I guess, for lack of a better term, as an audience member as much as the next person, right? Um, you know, uh, we're a long ways away technologically from 1922 when it comes mm -hmm. to filmmaking technology. And so, you know, sometimes I think a lot of people might be resistant to watching silent films or, or even even from even Herzog's film from 79. A lot of younger mm -hmm. people might be extremely hesitant because, you know, they're not cut the same. They're not. The timing is different. Pacing is different. There's there's different ways that we tell story. I think film grammar has changed a little bit. Still the same building blocks, but. But the but we've changed a little bit of the how we use that grammar, and so I think sometimes there might be a resistance. Oh, this is boring, or oh, you know, especially it's subtitled, and mm -hmm. especially especially if it's silent. But I really do feel like both of these films hold up. I think that if you even have a passing interest in film history, uh, or in horror, uh, you don't have to be a Herzog fan. You don't have to be a, a German expressionism fan. You know, mm -hmm. they're really interesting films. And I, you know, I, let me say one thing real quick here, because we have, you know, we try to. I don't think we try to go too deep into just specific little scenes. We try to kind of take a film at, on on its whole and kind of talk about these things. But gosh, I just want to. I want to see if you remember. Uh, one of the scenes, because it really stood out to me and it was fun. And, and thinking now about how film technology has changed made me think of this. So in in Murnau's film, there is this amazing scene uh, where, you know, so when when Jonathan is locked in the castle, right? And and Count Dracula loads up his coffins full of the earth and the rats that he's going to take on the on the river uh, to beat Jonathan to mm -hmm. Lucy when he's loading it up there's this so in Herzog's film it's very simple we just you've know, got this this kind of canted overhead shot a very beautiful shot but he's loading up this large kind of platform that's attached to his, uh, his horses and he puts the last coffin on top of this big stack of like a dozen black coffins and kind of he climbs into it and closes it up from within and then the horses take off driverless so it's a pretty cool shot but in but in Murnau's film I feel like it's it's even better. It's so fun to see these little tricks from these old films. So we have kind of the same thing. There's this, you know, these stacked up coffins on this carriage platform, you know, trailer, I guess. For, I don't know. Did they still call them trailers back like then? Carriage, you know, whatever, yeah. Something, you know, but this large flat platform that we'd you'd use to haul cargo. And he gets in the coffin, but they use this beautiful stop motion photography to have the the lid supernaturally placed upon the coffin to seal him up. And I just mm -hmm. always think, I don't know if you remember that. Yeah, no, I, I remember the shot, yeah. And, and I always just think how exciting those things must have been for an audience of that era. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, sometimes I feel like maybe there's a little hesitancy or resistance for people watching older films because we've kind of gotten, you know, I don't know if cynical is the word, but we live in a day and age of CGI everything and, you know, explosions everywhere and Marvel movies and spectacle, spectacle. But to see such a simple technique performed in such an awesome, effective way, to me, is it often beats all that CGI. Um, it just the ingenuity and the simpleness, but it's how it's applied to the story, how effective it is. So I don't know. I, I highly recommend it. That's pretty much the only gist of all of that is that I think they still hold up and they're still worth watching. And you should if you aren't. How's that? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I feel like I'm preaching now. It's that's like, a good one out there. Yeah. I need to say an amen. But uh, 
But anyway, yeah, well, Kate Cullen, as always, man, I mean, the time's flown by. Uh, Everybody listening out there, I hope you've enjoyed it as well. I I know I have. Cullen, it seems like you have. You talked about how fast you felt it flew by. (laughs) So, well, I look forward to our our next episode where we will likely uh, cover another Herzog film, which we have yet to pick out. Uh, So if anybody out there listening has any suggestions, uh, what films that you'd like us to uh, to discuss, please, by all means, shoot us an email. Uh, but yeah, Cullen, until next time, and everybody out there listening, thank you. Yeah, thanks, everyone. Thank you.